Welcome to Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change, the podcast where we come together as a community to share our stories and consider alternative perspectives on a wide range of topics. By sharing our stories, each and every one of us can help create the world we want to live in. Storytelling has the power to open minds, touch hearts, and inspire empathy and solidarity. It can move us to think and then act. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the faculty, staff, and student guests of each episode, but do not necessarily represent the views of Merrimack College. Hi, it's Deborah Michaels, Director of Women's and Gender Studies and the producer of Living Out Loud Storytelling for Social Change. In this episode, I visit with alums from the classes of 2012 through 2017, asking them how women's history factors into their daily lives, their professional lives, or their thoughts this month as we celebrate Women's History Month. Just wanted to step back for a minute and talk about the origins of Women's History Month. Like the discipline that I teach in, Women's and Gender Studies, Women's History Month is the product of women's activism. In the late 1970s, women in Sonoma County, California, organized a Women's Week to coincide with March 8th, International Women's Day. Other cities and towns began to do the same thing. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter declared the first week of March as Women's Week, Women's History Week, actually. And when he made this declaration, he said what I think is still very important about what makes Women's History Month so vital for all of us everywhere. He said, From the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first American Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation. Too often the women were unsung and sometimes their contributions went unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as that of the men whose names we know so well. That was President Jimmy Carter when he inaugurated the very first National Women's History Week in 1980. In 1987, Congress declared the month of March Women's History Month, again at the prodding of women's groups nationwide. And so that is why we take this month to celebrate and think about the women we don't learn about in our K through 12 educations, the women we don't learn about or think about in our daily lives, all of whom blazed trails that made our lives easier and better today. It's March, 2021, but for me right now, it's a blast from the past. It's a real treat that I'm sitting here today with some Merrimack College alums who took my US Women's History course when they were here at Merrimack College. I thought it would be fun to visit with them and see how what they learned way back when touches their lives today. So I'm gonna have them all introduce themselves for you and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about the past and about women's history in their lives today. So my name is Nick Davis. I graduated in 2017 and I'm currently serving as a fifth grade science teacher. I'm Adriana DeSico. I graduated in 2018 and I am an operations consultant at Bank of America. My name is Megan Sinclair, uh, Megan Sinclair Usher now. 
Um, I graduated from Merrimack in December of 2013. I was part of the 2014 class though. Um, and I currently work as the Equal Opportunity and Title IX Specialist at Minnesota State uh, Mankato. My name is Meg Salsman. I am the class of 2012. I am currently working as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, outpatient at Dana Group Associates in Needham. And yes. <laughs> Hi, my name is David Dupre Wilson. Uh, I'm a property manager at a company in uh, Southern New Hampshire and I work with condos in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And I was in the class of 2017. So we've got a nice range of folks here from 2012 to 2017. Um, so we'll get a variety of perspectives. So let's just start with a kind of an easy question. Uh, you all took the US Women's History class. What do you remember about that course? For me, that class was a real game changer with what I wanted to do in college. Um, I had never learned about women's history or just had a class that was so focused on um, gender and sexuality and all of that. So that was um, a really great opportunity for me to kind of learn a little bit more about who I am and um, all of the things that you taught really related to me, but I had never really known how to express those feelings that I had. So um, it was a really enjoyable class for me personally. And you said that you had also, I, I remember at the time, changed, added a, main, a minor, right? You added a women's and gender studies minor from that. Yeah, after that course, I think I went right to the registrar and said, I need to take more women's and gender studies classes, and I immediately added a minor. So it, that was really cool. Adriana, you were a business major? Yeah. Okay, so we'll come back to how that has kind of tied together. Um, yeah, Nick, what about you? What do you remember about that class? So... I originally took the class so that we can share a class and I thought that would be a great um, time in college. Uh, but the, the main thing I remember from it was that first week, it was very open. There's, you didn't know what exactly you were gonna learn, but you knew you were gonna learn something, like you were gonna leave class with a takeaway. And then as it continued, me being an African-American male um, on Miramax campus, it's, you know, you're part of that, that small group. So hearing the oppression that women have all like throughout history have seen, I could relate to it as a person that comes from a background of oppression. So that made me, I guess, form some type of empathy to really understand and want to understand what women women oppression looks like. So that's why I dug deeper into it. And I also added a, a minor of that. That's right. I remember that now. Um, and I also, you know, I have to say, Nick, I remember one of the comments you made in class early in the semester where you picked up on the market revolution and capitalism and what that meant for women's lives. I think about that every time I teach the course. I remember exactly the line you zeroed in on the textbook and I make sure I, that other students get that point as well. So see, you all influence me um, in my teaching just as much as I hope the class helped you. Um, what about the rest of you? What do you remember about that class? Yeah, Megan. Um, so, I took that class as a freshman. Um, I had one open elective in my 
advisor, uh, Professor McHugh, recommended that I take the class. Um, and I think I was like the only freshman in the class. It was all upperclassmen. So I was really nervous. Um, but it was a big like turning point, I think, um, really early on in my college uh, career. And it affected what I do today, even. Um, I think I loved the class. I remember being so pissed that my U.S. history class that I took in high school didn't mention like pretty much any of the things that you were teaching us. Um, and it, you know, it really was a her story class. Um, and the class I had taken in high school and, and my dad was a, a social studies teacher. So like I grew up very interested in history, but this pure women's perspective was missing in all of these, you know, the history that I had learned growing up. Um, and so I similarly went to the registrar and got uh, signed up for the minor because that was what all there was at the time. Um, and then I immediately started searching the course catalog for all of your other classes that I could take, uh, Professor Michaels, because I was like, I don't even care what they're about. I'm going to take them. Um, Thank you. I, <laughs> I eventually created a self-designed major um, because I, I just like I wanted more of it. I wanted a major because I wanted to take all of the classes in the department. Um, but I was a poli-sci major, so I ended up doing a double major. Um, my second one was self-design, and so I, it was gender law and global justice. And so I incorporated a lot of your classes, um, as well as Professor Leahy's classes into that, that major. Okay, we're going to definitely, I remember you doing a project on um, women in poverty, the history of women in poverty. See, I remember the things you all do. Um, yeah. <laughs> And that, yeah, I remember. What What about you, Meg? What do you remember from when you were in the class? Because it's true, Megan was here and Meg as well before we had a major. So if you did wanted, wanted to do more than a minor, you had to design it yourself. I did the same thing as Megan. I did a self-design major. I majored also in psychology, but I remember at the time, you know, also seeing how things played out because you're talking about, you know, certain women's issues in class and being in a college campus, you see it play out a little bit, right? So sort of these dynamics between, you know, the genders and the psychiatry and me, I'm like observing these interactions, but you just, you do and you see, you know, I just remember one thing that sticks out about Merrimack at the time was at the time you would walk into the cafeteria and the hockey team would be right up front, right up front in the cafeteria, they would get served. When I was there, they would get served food a lot of the time. So interesting to think back. This is, you know, 2008, but it's not like that anymore. But I, I do remember that maybe not always, but I just, I saw this happening and just, there was a bit of my, like, wow, it's really interesting. I feel like there's celebrities here and there's no, there was no woman's team equivalent to that. So there were a lot of little things that you picked up on. It's a small campus. So you can really hide this from, it wasn't like going to UMass and, um, there were a lot of little things that I picked up on from the class that I just I remember sticking out to me more because we were having these conversations. And then you walk around campus and you're like, oh, Jesus, like this is not made up. Seeing, seeing the sort of gender disparities, the racial disparities, the class disparities. Yeah. It, I mean, once I think the, the best part of any education is once you you get this new lens through which to see the world, you can't unsee things anymore. You can't ignore them anymore. Um, David, what about you? What do you remember from the good old days? Yeah, so I think I didn't take um, US women's history until maybe my junior year. 
um, spring of my junior year. So I'd already taken several WGS courses. Um, and it was interesting because like I knew, oh yeah, these are things that are happening, but then I had never really applied it to previous, like prior to the sixties. Um, and then it was really interesting for me because I was a history major and I was taking all these other history courses. And then when I took your course, I was like, wait, these are things that are not lining up at all for me. Like I just spent three years learning about history and now I'm just hearing about women's history for the first time. So why isn't it the same course? Um, so it was really interesting for me because then after that, you know, I was a, I was a uh, double major in history and secondary education. And after taking several WGS courses, I dropped my education major. And then I think in my senior year is when the WGS major became a thing. And so in December of my senior year, I picked up a second major um, meaning I had to write another thesis, <laughs> but right. I was able to work with you to figure out how to write one thesis instead. Um, so you did your project on Sacagawea, right? Yeah. So I wrote one extra long thesis on Sacagawea and how her legacy was kind of transformed through the different waves of feminism. Uh, and I think it was really interesting for me to think about what everything that I had loved for the past 12 or 13 years in school, um, through a totally different lens uh, and kind of figure out where I had just skipped over huge gaps. Um, so that was really interesting. And then because I had a WGS major, um, that kind of informed everything I did after that as well. Uh, and then, you know, starting new jobs, everybody's like, so what is that major? Like, you don't, you're not just studying women. Uh, and it got a lot of weird comments about that. Um, and then I, it kind of gave me an opportunity to be able to explain what it was and inform other people. Like there's actually all this information that you are just totally skipping over um, that you should have. So it has been kind of a conversation starter for me as well. Is that true for all of you? That's a really important point. I mean, we hear this all the time. I hear this from current students. I've heard it from all of you when you were at Merrimack, that, that people, when you say you're a, a WGS major or minor, that you study women and gender, that you get the, the, the raised eyebrow, the what are you going to do with that question? Um, has it in your post-college life um, given all of you that same opportunity David's talking about to have this ripple effect to educate people? Yeah, Nick, you're nodding your head, so. Yeah, I think, well, two points there, like the eyebrow raise when people say like, what, what is that? And a lot of the times I'll bring it up to like my dad or my older brothers who are very much in that older mindset of just like what people study that. Like, so when he tells people, yeah, he got um, a communications degree from Merrimack and I say, and a, a minor in women's gender studies, um, just so like they know, like bring awareness to it. And then I almost hope that people ask like, oh, what is that? Like, what does that mean? I'm like, okay, well, let me sit down and show you because like, for me, I would have never known unless I took the class, unless I asked the questions to then get that information. So it's like, we have this information now, it's like our duty to share that. Uh, which kind of leads to my second point of me being a teacher, which is I didn't go to school for it. It's a little different than what I was planning to do, but the responsibility I take on, especially this month, is letting my students know 
like, hey, this is very important information. These are significant events in history that are happening that just aren't in your textbooks for some odd reason. I mean, 2021, that, that like you said, um, David, that should be a part of history class. It shouldn't be two separate things. So I try to take that on for the fifth graders I have to show them this is all history. Like it's not a separate, separate thing. So you're a, a fifth grade science teacher introducing women's history in, a, in your classes. Are you, what are you doing? Are you showing them about the women scientists or are you going broader than that? So I would do kind of both. Like this week we talked about um, Amelia Earhart just being one of the first to fly a plane solo. I think it was over the Atlantic. And then we have a large population of uh, Latinx students. So is that Amelia Ochoa, um, one of the first women astronauts to, to fly into space. So I tried to mend a lot of different things like students are getting their cultural knowledge. They're getting science because that's what they pay me to do. Uh, but they're also getting this very important women's history aspect. Um, and I try to really lean on those students to soak this up. Like if you take anything away, I'd rather you know this than the definition for inertia. Like, I'm sorry. Cause this, this is probably more important and more applicable when you go out and like you're a person in society. Like I want you to know these things. I love your politics. And by the way, I love that you're teaching. I can totally see that for you. When, when Adriana sent me, um, a message that you were teaching, I thought, yes, that that's right. That's so right. Um, but the, but teaching is a political act in a way. I mean, being able to, and I think everything we do is a political act. You you all know that from every choice we make. But but I think that's it, it can be a really political act. Even the so you know just circling back to the conversations you have with people about you know when you tell them that that you had majored or minored in this, that's a political act too. Choosing when you chose to say to your dad and women's and gender studies, or when any of you tell people that. Um, I have students, for example, who will who've told me that they strategically decide when and who to share that information with, and sometimes deliberately to be provocative. You know, to be, you know, it is a lot of work, right? To do what, to do this kind of work and, you know, know that you're going to be the one everybody asks to be the authority on whatever subject because you majored or minored in it. Um, so putting it out there and knowing you're going to get the onslaught of questions um, is brave and important, I think, really important. What about the rest of you? Um, so I, I haven't necessarily had that as a, like kind of an icebreaker conversation starter with me having it as a minor and a self-design major, but I did just want to jump in because you were talking about kind of a, you know, deliberate, provocative, uh, political acts and it just, uh, those of you on the podcast can't see it, but I have two big bookshelves behind me filled with, uh, books from college, books from law school, uh, from both me and my husband. And when I was unpacking the books, he was a history minor in college. So, and he also is very interested in World War I. So we have a lot of history books. Um, and I had a big collection of women's history um, books and things from my women and gender study days. Um, and I purposely didn't make them their own section on the bookcase. They are mixed in with the other history books because it's not its own 
thing. It it's all history. Um, so I just wanted to to share that. I think that's important too. I mean, one of the reasons when you all said that you learned things and by the end of the semester were kind of annoyed, angry, like why wasn't I learning this before? Or David was saying how being a history major, this was the first time he got any concentrated conversations around women and gender. Um, it, it has been this segmented thing. It has been this thing you do that's extra or on the side or on top of the more traditional disciplines. Um, so I think it's important that you did that. Yeah, David. I think when I'm thinking about that is like, I spent basically a whole semester learning about the history of the shipping container and like shipping trade routes. And in this, at the same time, I was taking a lot of WGS classes and my mind was blown that I, I was spending multiple hours a week talking about the dimensions of a shipping container and how that transitioned from boats to trucks and trains. And then there was this whole other world of amazing accomplishments and advancements in society that was being ignored for shipping containers. <laughs> Or, you know, even if you're studying shipping containers um, and okay, um, you can still bring gender, you can still bring race into that conversation because who is that everybody is affected by all the things in history or helping to shape all of the things in history. Um, and that's, of course, you know, my mission is, is for all of us to see it's not, we don't have to be so narrow and deep. Um, when you think about Women's History Month, what, what comes to mind for you? Is there a favorite person? Is there a moment in history that speaks to you that you wish people knew? I think for me, I've always been drawn to um, sort of the Roe v. Wade era and it's been so relevant now. And I just piggyback on kind of what everyone else has been saying. You didn't learn about that in high school. You didn't learn about that landmark case and how it's sort of constantly being threatened and the Planned Parenting funding. It's just, it's such a, it represents so much more than just that decision. But I think that especially now with, you know, Trump politics, everything kind of coming to a head, I would say in the last five years around that, even though it's already been an issue, um, that always came up for me. I think I did a project on it. I think it was in woman. I think it was in this class. I was trying to remember when I did that project. Um, but it, it is, it's a very, it's very relevant now, probably even more so than when I was sitting in that seat. And because of the work you do as a nurse, I'm sure you think about, you know, issues of reproductive justice as healthcare. Um, so uh, yeah, absolutely. Adriana, what do you think about when you think about Women's History Month? Second wave feminism. I had never heard of that before. Like that term, I, when we got in the, cor the course, we started learning about that. I was like, wow, like this is like a life changer for me because I didn't realize that those conversations and like those movements were happening. Um, and I think we also watched the, a movie, was it The Pill? Yes. Is that the name of the movie? Yeah. Watch that. I learned about um, contraceptive and like access that women have to that. And I feel like that's just still so relevant in today's today's world. And especially when we were when we took the class, I think that was when Trump got elected. Like, I think we took it in the fall and all these conversations that we were learning about history were kind of like brought back up when the presidential election was happening. Um, but definitely like all of the fights that women were having, I feel like we're still kind of having them. And I, I 
I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know that this has been going on for so long and that there are huge movements around this. Um, and it wasn't something that I learned until, until that course. I remember you asking a question toward the end of the semester, and it might have been our wrap-up session, um, when you wanted to know about um, movements for poorer women who could not afford feminine products. Do you remember this? This is something that I still think about all the time, is like I think about poor people and how they like how do they have access to feminine products do they what do you do I just it's something I literally think about all the time in it I don't remember the question but it's still something that sticks with me because I don't I don't remember the exact way you framed the question but you, when you asked that question in the class it was the first time anyone had ever asked that question in any of my classes which shows you how politics evolve historically right when you just mentioned like the women's movement of the 60s and 70s um they weren't they should have been addressing that stuff and they weren't right as we move through issues other things come up we have new awarenesses and when you asked that question that was the first time someone had asked like why aren't we getting angry about the fact that for you know, that this is a not covered for anybody by any medical insurance or by anything and B, what about poor women? Um, since then, I have seen people on campus um, collecting, well, not during the pandemic, obviously, but pre-pandemic collecting um, supplies to be donated so women can have access to them. I've had students doing projects about, about this in the senior seminar who are, I think this is going to become, I think you had your finger on the pulse of something, Adriana. I think this is going to become an increasingly important issue that people raise when they think about, um, you know, justice more broadly for, um, for women in particular, but for poorer women especially. So you were right there. You had your finger on that one. Um, what else? What, what else do you think about for Women's History Month that comes up for you? Meg, you wanted to add something. So I think specific to the pandemic too, you think of, so there are all these movements to help get access for poor women to women's products. And now you think of the pandemic and all of that has slowed down, but the need is still there. And I, I often think of that in the context of my, you know, my patients, population I serve. But in addition to that, what we're seeing a shift in is women who have been having these illustrious careers, all of a sudden, I'm seeing more women at home now, all the momentum on their career on hold, homeschooling, and I am seeing more women at home doing that role, 100%. I mean, that's not, I can't, that's not something I'm making up. I mean, it's unbelievable. These women with these great careers, all of a sudden, I've even seen it in contexts where the woman was a breadwinner, the woman was making more money than their partner, but yet they're the ones at home giving up their, not giving up or putting on hold their careers, which is just sad. We don't know if they're giving them up. That's the truth. I mean, what you're talking about is a really important moment to watch, right? This is the future of history. This moment in terms of the pandemic and its impact on women, um, we're gonna see trends like this. We, we already know it's affecting poorer women um, and women of color and people of color more deeply because of the service sector jobs that they do and their risk of exposure. But now also we're seeing for, as you're talking about career women of all races, um, that 
that the old gender roles kick right back in. Adriana's motherhood penalty is right there. They're the ones expected to do the all the kids stuff. When the kids are home, they've got to be the one having their jobs and their and educating their children. And for many of them, you're right, Meg, they're just dropping out for now. Um, and we hope it's for now. I mean, this has been the big question. Kamala Harris is talking about this a lot. Are we losing a talent pool for the for the for the future, not just for the moment? And you all know from the women's history class that we have seen the employment rates for women increase since World War II uninterrupted, except for the two years right after World War II. It's been a steady climb. I think we're going to see them drop for the next few years. And I hope they go back up, but they may just decline in level. Um, we don't know. It's it's really unknown. Um, Megan, what, what, what were your thoughts about this? Uh, well, I was just going to kind of add to that. I it was on the radio I had heard, and I don't know if it was like an NPR or like I was listening to CNN or something, but it, and I, don't quote me on this, but if I'm remembering this statistic correctly, I think it was saying something that of women that are working full-time um, and are also, they've kind of taken on this primary caregiver role for their kids as they're home in the pandemic, 40% of them are the primary breadwinners in their household still. And they're still taking on this additional role of, you know, kind of running, running the schoolhouse and running the daycare um, and their household all at the same time. Um, and this actually brings up something and I, cause you had sent us some questions before and I kind of started thinking about answers and I didn't think about this, but as, so I just became a mother. Um, my little girl was born at the end of December. Um, and so, I mean, women's history month really brings up, I mean, just kind of the, the history of, of motherhood in our country. Um, and I actually, Related to this, um, you know, women taking on the primary caregiver role for their kids, there's this phenomenon called the default parent, because I, in my spare time, when baby's napping and I'm running errands, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and they're, um, they're very parenting based these days, um, talks about the default parent and that that's the parent that has to it just it defaults to them that, you know, they're the ones that have to, to ask to do this, like, hey, can you watch so I can take a shower? Um, and that this is still pr primarily women. Um, and so, I mean, because I, I have a career, I'm on maternity leave, I go back to work on Monday, but, um, you know, I've, and my husband was home for a period of time, and it's not that he didn't want to be home longer, but he didn't have the leave that I did. Um, but, that, you know, yeah, just how motherhood has changed and that, you know, that there, you are expected to kind of do it all to still be able to have a career and then also be mom full time and run the household. And, um, and not that I get that pressure from my husband, but there still is a societal pressure in this, you know, because people come into your house, like if people come to my house and my house is messy, I'm the one they're looking to as to why the house is messy, despite the fact that my husband is the one that makes it messy all the time. Um, it's still like, I'm the one that receives judgment for that. And so, so I've been thinking a lot about that and just the change to, to motherhood. Um, another big thing, I mean, related to what I do is title nine. Um, and so, so my role, um, I investigate, uh, title nine, uh, complaints and other things too. So all things um, protected class issues. So race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, 
sex, so discrimination and harassment and sexual violence complaints um, on my campus. Um, and so Title IX is very important to what I do. Um, but I, I remember when I learned about Title IX, so long before I ever knew that I wanted to work in Title IX, I was a little, little girl after a hockey game, sitting in a 1950s diner with my dad, um, looking at all the poodle skirts and the fun colors and the fun music and was like, dad, I want to live in the 50s. Um, and, and so, which is just really funny. If you know me now, um, that is not something I would ever wish to live in the fifties. Um, but so I was like, dad, I want to live in the fifties. And he's like, well, Megan, you couldn't play hockey if you lived in the fifties. And I, like, I loved hockey growing up, but I was a big hockey family, um, from Minnesota and my, like my dad coached my whole life. And so, um, very much part of my, my life. I grew up in a hockey rink, but I like, I couldn't imagine my life without it. And he was like, well, you know, why couldn't I play hockey when I was, if I lived in the fifties and he's like, women and girls didn't get to play sports really. Um, and so he talked to me about title nine and that, you know, that this, I don't think he knew the, he knew the year at the time, but it was passed in 1972. Um, and most people know title nine as a sports law that requires, women and girls to have equal access to sports. Uh, you know, it's since we know it to be also protecting women um, and, and men from sexual violence. Um, and that's a bulk of what I do on campus. But I, I always think of that. Um, and I, who, I, at the time, I would never have guessed that I would grow up to do work with Title IX, um, but it has always held a, a special place in my heart just because of allowing me to play sports and that that conversation I had in a 50s diner in a small town in Minnesota when I was probably like eight or nine. Yeah, I don't see you living in the 50s at all as someone who's known you all these many years. I don't see any of you living in the 50s, by the way. Um, Wow. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm going to call, I'm going to do something. I'm going to call you out for a second. I, so when you were talking about the house being messy and, you know, people look to you. So I saw Nick kind of look over at Adriana and there was a, there was, and, and Adriana gave that famous Adriana, like, don't, don't go there. Look, I saw her just like, don't go there. Um, so I don't know what that's about. I'm, I'm wondering if there's like, who's the messy one in that couple? Uh, we have, <laughs> Our personalities are very much opposite. I'm very in every way. <laughs> she likes structure. I'm very I'm a type go A with the flow. And he's type B. And like we just yeah, it's it's I can sum this yeah. up with one thing. If I know I'm wearing the sweatshirt later that I have on, I'll take it off and kind of put it over one of the chairs downstairs. Cause I know I'm gonna come back later to get it. She'll walk by it and she can't help herself but to grab it and go put it where it goes, like where it's hanging up. So that's kind of, that's us that's in a nutshell. Well, I think every relationship needs a good type A and a good type B. So um, in the end, it, it probably works out. Um, so how does women's history come into your lives? I mean, Ma Megan was just talking about um, and, and Nick, also, you were talking about real specific things. I mean, you when you're doing your Title IX work, you're clearly aware of, of its history and its relevance and its, you know, how hard fought for it was. How, um, But are there other ways it touches your life daily or in your work? Yeah, David, what were you thinking? Um, so I was thinking, uh, you know, when in the late 
1900s, the second half of the, of the 1900s, when women really started to push back on the idea of what it means to be feminine. Um, I think that not only changed things for women, but changed things for people of all genders to really talk about and open a dialogue on gender as a construct. And then that kind of allows me to think about what it means to be masculine. Um, I identify as a cis man, and I think that I am typically expected to perform a certain way. Um, and I typically do not. Uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I think I have a lot of masculine qualities, but in terms of being like non-emotional um, and needing to kind of take charge in a situation, like that's not me at all. Uh, I think that I have really been, since I have been taking these classes is figuring out what it means for me, like what masculinity is and, and what it means to be a strong man. Um, because I think that a strong man can have tough conversations and be emotional and not always be in the lead. Um, and I think that that's not something that is typically expected. Um, and so I just started my new job as a property manager at the beginning of February. Um, and like we were mentioning before, I put WGS major first on my resume because I don't want to work in a place that isn't going to value that or is going to think it's weird. Um, so I always make sure to put that first. Um, and then, you know, as I was starting, people were like, what does that mean? Um, and then just this past week, one of my coworkers who is pretty conservative and likes to be kind of antagonistic. And I know he doesn't believe most of the things he says. He just says it to get a rise out of people. Um, and I'm people. Uh, so he was talking about like what it means to be a manly man or something like that. And I tried to bite my tongue for as long as I could. Um, but he just kept going because he could sit, he could tell that it was irritating me. Um, and then finally I kind of just had to go off and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you were raised in this structure where you have to perform a certain way and that's not how people have to perform. And, um, you know, based on his behavior, I'm kind of glad that he doesn't have any kids because I can't imagine how they would like the pressure that they would feel. Um, and I think that I, I'm really grateful for having a class like this and a partner like I have who kind of led me to this uh, topic. And um, I think that it really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. Um, and so I think, you know, thinking about while I'm, I, you know, I used to work in higher ed for three years, I was working in residence life um, and it was very, very social justice based, very, um, you know, every day we're talking about how power dynamics and things like that affect our students and each other and even our team in our office and how, you know, it was a pretty diverse group of people in our office. And, um, and that was something I really valued. Uh, and then I was laid off because of COVID and, you know, things were kind of weird anyway. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to stay in the field. And so now that I've gotten a new role in a, a similar responsibilities to ResLife, but uh, a very different uh, industry. Everybody in my office is white. Uh, it's not social justice based at all. A lot of the condo board members that I work with are really conservative. And so I have to figure out how to maintain my job, which I need in a setting where I'm, I'm not able to be as uh, open about my personal opinions as I have previously been. 
And so I think, you know, spending so much time in WGS classrooms and then so much time in a higher ed grad program and then working in res life, I was given this liberty basically of being able to talk about this with a lot of like-minded people for five, six, seven years. And now I'm all of a sudden in a place where that's not something. Uh, and I'm struggling with that and trying to figure out how to separate my personal opinions from my, from my professional performance. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, women's history comes in a lot with that because that's something that women have had to do forever and kind of biting their tongue and knowing their role in the workplace, as some would like to say. Um, and I think that that's something that I can look to women in history as an example on. Pretty powerful. It, do they know you? your last name is a compositive of yours and Laura, um, also an alum, uh, last names? Yeah, so my last name was Wilson. My wife's last name was Dupre, um, my, but my wife has two sisters. And so she was like, well, if I change my name, then nobody is going to have my name anymore. Um, and I tried to just change my last name to Dupre, actually, but my mom wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> Um, so we decided to combine them and not hyphenate, not have two last names, but actually just make one new last name for us and our kids, um, when we have them. And so I think it's, it's a really unique name and people always ask questions about it. So I really welcome that. And at first I was like, oh, everybody's going to be asking and have to explain it all the time. But now I love it because I get to talk about the decision that we made and how that impacts, uh, our family. And I mean, we will get to teach our kids about compromise and working together immediately. So that's something that I'm actually really proud of. You should be proud of it. And I would think that's an easy way to do your politics, even in your current job, because when people ask, they're getting an answer and you're making them think without you having to say, and you should be like this and you should, you know, so I think that's sort of an easy entree. Nick, you had some thoughts about this. Yeah. The, the point uh, that David made about, you know, when, Certain people have a mindset, uh, very closed and, and centered mindset, and then they have kids, and then they pass those. I mean, that's how all of these biased ideas still exist because people who have a set way of thinking pass that down to the, the generation below them, and so on and so forth. Um, and as a teacher, you know, I'm with students from 8.30 to 4.30 every day. So I take that as my responsibility to, hey, if you're getting taught these things at home, like these biased um, ideas and mainly Women's History Month focus that women aren't at the equal, like there's no superior uh, gender, like men or women. As we see in history, it's always the men that get highlighted. So if that's what they're seeing at home, I take that as a responsibility and so do the teachers around me to break that and send them home with the idea that women are just as powerful as men could do anything that men could do and they have been doing it throughout time and these are the examples of it. So that's kind of how it ties in. Um, and then I guess I'm pulling it way back uh, when Megan was talking about her work in Title excuse me, in Title IX, uh, I'm currently in a grad program for sports management and 
we spent three weeks on just that topic alone and how like relevant, important and how it happens every single day. Um, so it's just like, I think this month in general, making awareness, learning, and then applying. Because if you don't bring these problems to, you know, right in front of you, then they'll never be solved or then we won't understand them. I just have to jump in. I think that's so awesome that you spent three weeks on Title IX in your sports management class, because that is, that may not seem like, a, I mean, Title IX could be its whole own class. Um, but even like I took a sex-based discrimination class uh, in law school and we spent maybe a day and a half on Title IX. Um, I mean, of course we covered a whole bunch of court cases in that time, but I mean, yeah, it could be its whole own class. And so I think that's awesome that you got to spend three weeks on it. I just had to jump in and say that. I'm going back to what David was talking about with combining the last names. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we're um, engaged and, um, you know, you know me, I'm not very like traditional, you know, and that's a big, I wouldn't say issue with my family, but definitely a talking point. Like the wedding comes up in conversation on a daily basis. Um, because our wedding is not a traditional wedding. We're going to go to a courthouse and um, that's it, just the two of us. And then we'll do something with our, my family and something with his family, just based on like geographic location. But it is a hot topic for us because, you know, that's not what, that's not what weddings are supposed to be. You know, you, you're, you're the bride, do what you want. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And they're like, no, it's not do what you want, you know, have, have the big puffy dress and, the you know mar get married in a church I'm, and I'm like oh, it's just not really for me and it I didn't I've never been one to like dream about a wedding I didn't think I was going to get married honestly so we're doing it the way that we want to do it and people are not my family is like not okay with it <laughs> my mom's actually been really good surprisingly but everyone else is like very keen on giving us their opinions on wanted so and really quick um and i think it's just because again people are so stuck in the way of thinking and i'll admit that even i took your class my junior year not that i was super close-minded i just was never seeking out other perspectives so by putting myself in that class the second you sat down, you didn't have a choice but to see other perspectives. Now you can either be closed off to it or accept it. If you accept it, then these things don't seem out of normal. Like why not combine our last names? Why shouldn't my wife's name live on? You know, things like that. Why should we have to fit in this box of, oh, well, this is how it's always been done. Like, I don't, it's, it's a different time. And if you've listened to the conversations that continue to be out there, you're open to it. And it, it doesn't really, uh, it's not that crazy as people would think. Weddings are one of the places I think we can see women's history all over them, right? I mean, the ways in which 
you know, the father gives the bride away as if she's a gift to be propertied, right? The, the veil that she must be covered in virginal until this moment of the sort of, you know, coming together, all of these kinds of things. I didn't know you were that untraditional, Adrian, but um, Adriana, but I'm, I'm not surprised. So I just, it didn't occur to me to think about it at all. Um, it doesn't surprise me, but this is the pressure you're feeling is the classic, you know, um, people trying to put you back in the box. They're telling you they're doing this for you, that you you should have what you want. I'm sure, Nick, that they're deeply suspicious that you're behind this somehow, that <laughs> surely, surely, if not for that man pressuring you to go to the courthouse, you would have the poopy dress. Um, and of course, that's it's probably the opposite that's true. I think too, so um, it, it kind of relates back to what we talked about earlier with um, telling people that ERWGS major or minor. And I think the reason that my mom is so like, okay with it is because we've talked about my WGS minor and she knows that this is who I am. And this is like, I'm going to do what I want regardless. And She's accepted that when there's like more distant relatives in my family who kind of don't have that understanding of this is just who I am. You know, this is, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. And this is what we want to do um, this is in, in this instance. But um, that has definitely come up in conversation and, and, you know, kind of explains where I'm at. Like when I told that to my mom, she was like, I kind of expected that. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you had a kid before you got married. She's like, I don't think you're very traditional. And I was like, okay. I'm glad we're on the same page that it's not like a, a set order. You're okay with us making decisions that we want to make. And it's not this first, then this, then this, then this. So. I think that's great. Megan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, well, so I just wanted to jump in on this, some of this wedding and name talk, because I remember when I was getting, when I was engaged and getting married, uh, I actually had a long talk with uh, Professor Michaels about my name because I was, I was stuck. Um, so my last name is Sinclair Usher. It's, I just have two last names. Um, and my husband, he, he actually didn't want me to take his name. He's like, I don't, I don't really want you to have it. <laughs> Um, and he didn't like it because he didn't have that attachment to like, I have to take his name. And he was like, I, I mean, he wasn't opposed to me having his name, but um, it wasn't a thing for him. I know some people, it, it, it can be an important thing to carry on a family name and that sort of thing. Um, but I wanted to keep Sinclair. Um, I didn't want to, you know, kind of fall into that tradition of assuming his name um, but I also like I my mother in law is a doctor and so she has her maiden name and so she talked about how when she had kids her kids all had her husband's last name and um, it was always such a pain for her that like people didn't think they were her kids because she didn't they had a different last name than her um, and so I didn't want to have that and um, my husband didn't want our kids to have like all of these names. Uh, <laughs> And it didn't bother me because I, my first name and my middle name and my last name were all spelt weird. And so I'm used to having to constantly like spell out my name. And, um, but I remember talking to professor Michaels and she had suggested and talked about Elizabeth Katie Stanton and how she just had the two last names. And so that's why I ended up doing my name the way that I, the way that I did. Um, I also think all the wedding stuff is even the most like liberal and progressive people start kind of falling back into these traditions 
um, and these gender norms. Cause I was really adamant when I was getting married, I didn't want my dad to walk me down the aisle. Um, I didn't, I didn't like the idea of it. Um, and I told him I didn't want him to walk me down the aisle and, and everybody had an opinion about this. Like I wasn't asking for opinions, but like my in-laws would be like, well, people are going to think that you're estranged from your father if he doesn't walk you down the aisle. I'm like, I don't, we just, my father and I are very close. We talk on the phone all the time. Um, and so it wasn't that at all. And anybody that knows me would know that that's the case, but everybody and their sister had an opinion about whether my dad should give me away at my wedding. <laughs> um, so I, weddings is a really interesting thing to talk about. I feel like I could have written a book at the time about all the, the gender norm traditions that you come up against as you're planning a wedding. Um, they also say weddings are about you. They're not about you. They're about your family. It's about what your family wants. <laughs> what did you end up doing, Megan? Did you end up having your father walk you down the aisle? Did you crush under the pressure or did you, because I remember you and I talking about that at the time as well. You were worried about hurting his feelings as well, but you had a very specific image of being this independent woman and you didn't want to be sort of handed off to another man from one man to another. Yeah. So what happened? I had the talk with my dad. I told him I didn't want him to, um, but he got a little sneaky with me at the rehearsal and he just popped up there and I wasn't going to call him out in front of all these people. And I didn't want to embarrass him or hurt his feelings. So he ended up walking me down the aisle because at that point he walked me down at the rehearsal dinner. And if everybody like, it would have been this thing. Um, it is something that I would have changed if I could do it over again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really didn't want him to, but I, I feel like I kind of got stuck into it. He was happy. So that's a plus, but <laughs> it was a great day either way. I think you just even having that conversation with your dad um, and expressing, this is why I want to walk myself down. Like I'm a strong, powerful woman. Like I don't need someone to give me away. Just even that conversation is like in my eyes a win because some of those conversations aren't even had um and we don't know how like your dad may have told that story to your mom um told that to someone else and now a handful of people have this new idea of well yeah i, I guess it's not a man giving away a woman like they're not giving the daughter it's not way back when like this is a powerful woman choosing to marry this man um, so I think even the conversation is a win. And then based on that conversation, I've never thought of this at all. Like we've talked about her wanting to walk herself down if that was the path we were taking. Um, but based on that, I, if we have a daughter, that won't be, that would be something I would instill in her early that like, yes, you get our permission. Like you'll get my permission as your father, but you won't see me walk you down to give you away to this man. Like, and this is why, like, you're a powerful young lady. Like you can do this on your own. This is your choice. Not me giving you away to someone. It did. It did force me. I mean, not force me, but like I told my husband, um, who was very progressive and a feminist and he took women and gender studies classes and everything too. Um, that I was like, and now we have a daughter. 
Um, I was like, you do not get to walk her down the aisle unless she wants you to. If she, if she wants you to do it, then that's her choice. But I'm like, I don't want you sticking to this. Like, she's my little girl and, you know, giving her away. I'm like, you're not hers. And, and I said this when I had the conversation with my dad. I'm like, I'm not yours to give. And I'm not Ryan, my, my husband. I'm not his to take. Um, you know, you're not giving me to him and he's not, he's not taking me. I'm choosing to be with him and I choose to be with him every day. So yeah, I definitely told him like, not with our daughters. <laughs> it's interesting because I, when, when I got married in 2019, I didn't think a whole lot about the last name dynamic and right but the time I would be changing my last name, I was applying for my DEA number and the process of changing my last name, but also needing my prescriber authority. I was like, well, that's more important to me right now. So it just didn't happen. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it's going to, um, it's not really something we talk about. It's not something that Jim is, he doesn't care. So it just, I think I will care when we have kids that they have a different last name. I think that might be a problem for me, but we'll kind of cross that when we come to it. I mean, they're still my kids. We, we're going to be, we look alike, I hope. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're not going to be the mailman's kids. So <laughs> okay. I mean, it's interesting though, because when my sister, between my sister and I, we've had a couple weddings and um, three marriages, two sisters. And it's, um, it's interesting because my father, Jim and I have been together for almost 10 years and he never asked my father if it was okay. And my dad's philosophy on it was very similar. He said, I'm not the one you have to get approval from. I'm not marrying you. I'm, you know, my dad's very progressive that, that way. So um, it, it was funny how that all played out, but yeah, I don't know. What I told Brian that if he had asked my dad for permission, I would not have uh, said yes. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have to ask for permission either um and he said it was you said it wasn't really permission it was just like a hey by the way type of situation it wasn't like at this point we've we have a house together so I think everyone kind of knew it was coming and regardless if, if one of them were going to say no I'd be like all right well we're going to get married anyways you're just not invited now so it wasn't like a permission thing but he still wanted you still wanted to to have that conversation ahead of time and I would say it ties back to David, when you were talking about like, what is masculinity? Masculinity looks like this, this, this. For me, like I fell into that because I was, I'm the youngest of seven siblings and five of them boys, like manly man walk around the house. So it was like, you do this to be like a respectful young man. You ask for permission or you are very upfront with um, your partner's parents. So even though I try to fight against like what a man is, like it's just an idea, I still fall into that like, oh, I'm doing it again. Like I didn't have to do this, but I'm doing it because this has always been ingrained in my head to do acts like these. 
But I do hear you all saying, even as you, it's hard to break out of the gender roles that we're all sort of socially constructed to be. But I do hear you all taking that minute to think things through um, and, you know, to understand what it means to be doing the things you're doing and then to decide whether to do them or not or to or to slightly alter them. Like if you're saying, Nick, that you, talking to your fiance's father is about respect, that's really different than it being about you know, getting permission to, you know, marry her. It's about being, you know, that if you're seeing it as I'm being respectful to her family to let them know that, that I would like to marry this woman, um, that's really different than saying, you know, will you allow me to do that? Um, it's, a, you know, it seems subtle, the, the, the difference, but the difference to me is significant. So I think, you know, I've just really enjoyed this conversation with all of you about the things, what you're bringing into the world and the ripple effect that you're having on all the lives you touch and really how passionate you are about and conscious you are about how you are navigating the world as people who are always aware of the struggles of those who came before, whether they're women or people of color or LGBTQ Americans. Um, just on a closing note, since it is Women's History Month, if there's one takeaway you'd want people to have who are listening to this episode, something you feel like you, if you really wanna get Women's History Month or you really wanna honor women this month or, um, and the legacy of, of, the, of the women who've come before, what would you like people listening to take away? Nick, why don't you start us off? Um, I'll make it short and sweet that the history that is being taught in schools across the country does not recognize or appreciate women's history. So if you want to get that knowledge, you have to go and get it yourself. Um, don't just wait for it to come to you because you'll be a, a junior in college, a senior in college before you understand certain things that are possibly a part of your everyday life. A woman came up with that. Um, so if you want that information, you have to go get it. Great. I think for me, it's starting and continuing to have conversations about um, women's history and women's equality and, and kind of everything that goes with that. Um, I think this is a good time to, like this month is a good time to bring up conversations about equality in women's history because it's kind of everywhere coming at different aspects. I know at my job, um, we have a few different women's history month events and I'm taking that as a way to invite some of my teammates who might not be on those communications because they're not in the different like women's support groups that we have. Um, and, you know, passing the message along and saying like, hey, I'm going to this, you should come too. Like, you look like you're free to stay, join me. You know, it's kind of, almost making them come um, because there's nothing, why not? You know, why not come and learn something about different women um, at our job and the kind of the accomplishments that they've had too. So I think just continue starting and continuing the conversation is important. I think it's great that you're encouraging other people um, by and, and that wonderfully subtle, subtle, supportive, hey, I'm going, why don't you join me? Yeah. Um, we didn't really get a chance to talk about how you bring that into your um, or how you were able to do that talk that you did um, on the, I mean, were you, were you invited to do that? How did that talk come up that you talked about the gender pay gap? Yeah, so we have a, um, so I was in a, a development program at my job and it was in technology and operations. And we have a group there that is called Women of Technology and Operations or WITNA. 
and they do events throughout the year. And I've been involved in that group since I interned there. Um, and we were watching, oh, now I'm going to forget the movie, but there's a movie that we watched about teaching young girls technology um, and building robots and how that if they didn't have that at such a young age, they would never would have joined that the robotic group in high school because they, you know, the guy, the young boys had that prior experience and how that kind of affects like the, um, the areas of business that women go in. And I was asked to sit on the panel and talk about the, the pay gap and just the different opportunities that that young girls are presented as compared to young boys. And then also I got to bring in like the motherhood effect and kind of that pause that women have to take, um, you know, when they have a, when they have a baby. Um, so I, yeah, I was asked to do that. And I, it was, it was really exciting to kind of bring in some of the work that I did in college. And, you know, I got to, to share my thesis with a lot of people and um, just kind of bring up that conversation and invite people that wouldn't have been at that, um, that program just because I was I was on it so that was really cool. I'm glad we had a chance to hear that because I think it's important for the Merrimack students who are listening now to hear that the work you're doing really will have some utility after college in ways you can't even imagine. What about the rest of you? What would you like people to know about Women's History Month to take away? Yeah, Megan, what are you thinking? Um, kind of just to add on to that, I mean, I think continuing to have conversations and, and going out there to get get the knowledge and the history. Um, and I think it's, if people feel safe and comfortable talking about even your own experiences, because I think we are living in an era too, where a lot of things that we've seen throughout history or that we maybe thought were history um, are coming up again and they're happening again. And so things that we, issues that we maybe thought were resolved, I mean, like Roe v. Wade, I mean, that's, how old of a case we should be, people should just be accepting that and moving on, but we're still constantly having to continue to fight for that. I remember being at the Women's March in um, 2016, I think, um, in DC, and just the, the number of older and elderly women that were there that were there fighting for these things when they were happening are like, how are we still having to do this? Um, and so I think people sharing sharing those experiences and, um, you know, the lived experiences, I think is really important. Um, and then also as a new mom, I think, um, and, and anybody that has exposure to, to kids is sharing, sharing what you know and what you can and making an effort to educate them on women's history as best you can. Um, I think I, I feel like this in this time, it, it is easier. There's a lot of like even kids books out there about, um, women and their contributions to history um, and black women's contributions to history and um, women of all races and ethnicities and uh, you know sexual orientations and how they've contributed. And so passing that down to younger generations in an age appropriate way is I think extremely important. Having two nephews that are in you know, they live in Virginia. I, I, I often do think about that, Preston Michaels, in terms of how to sort of frame that for them. Um, but I also just think, you know, it's his, it, as they, Megan said, it's historical, but we're seeing everything come up now. And I think the best thing that I can say is to pay attention to what's happening because so much stuff that we thought was 
resolved we have to defend and you're like is this what year are we in and it's it's disheartening at times but it just makes it more important that we have to pay attention and we have to have these conversations you're so right you're also right i mean if you're not paying attention things are changing without your consent um so it's very it's really really important to think about that in women's history month so david last but not least what do you want people to take away from this month um i think when I was writing my senior thesis, uh, and I was writing about Sacagawea, like we talked about earlier, uh, I learned that so much of what we know about her is either totally made up or guesswork. Uh, and that's because she wasn't mentioned very often in the journals of Lewis and Clark. Uh, and when they did mention her, it was high praise, um, but they didn't think that her contributions as a woman or as an indigenous person were valuable enough to be recorded as hers. Um, and so they would take credit for them or attribute them to her husband who really did nothing um, except for actually hinder the group's progress. So that's a different story, but it really makes me think about how I recognize the contributions of the people around me of all different identities. Um, and, you know, now I'm in a new role where I'm not doing that so much, but especially when I was supervising RAs, um, who are impressionable college students. And um, I think that it really drove me to recognize their accomplishments and their efforts um, and appreciate them and all of their identities uh, while they gave those accomplishments and efforts. So um, I think if you're gonna take something out of this, then um, look at everything that has been done wrong or everything that has not been included in the past uh, and actively try to change that. Thank you all for giving me this um, incredible gift of getting to see you all again and hear what you're doing and how women's history remains sort of in, you know, in your lives in, in multiple ways um, that you probably didn't even think about before we had this conversation. Um, but I, I'm so grateful. And I'm also really proud of the fact that you are all heavily engaged in the ripple effect, whether it's in your personal conversations, in the choices you make, or in the lives you touch every single day. So thank you again for being with me. Um, and uh, keep doing the work you're doing. Got an idea for an episode or want to join our team? Email us at livingoutloud at merrimack.edu. Executive producers are Deborah Michaels and Tiffany Begensterns. Audio engineering and editing by Michael Senoff. Living Out Loud is made possible with the generous support of a Provost Innovation Grant and assistance from the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning.